you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Remember last week we said that there is a hinge point in the book of Romans, and that hinge point is chapter 12, where we go from this enormous, lofty theology to how it lands and why it's significant in our lives. And here we have a series of exhortations that are loosely collected, but they're meant to be absorbed, meditated upon, dwelt in, one at a time. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to dwell in verse 10 and see the significance of it in the lives of believers in the life of the church. So just one verse this morning, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Let's read God's word together. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Can I read that one more time since it's just one verse? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, you are a consuming fire. A consuming fire. And Lord, the sincere desire of your people in whom your spirit dwells is that you would consume us. That you would consume us that you would consume all of our thoughts, that you would consume all of our affections, that you would consume all of our ambitions, that you would consume every waking second of our life. And that, Father, those of us in whom your Spirit dwells, who are consumed by your glory, that, Lord, your glory would bring us together and form us into a family that is irrevocable. Father, I pray, I pray this morning for the man, the woman, the teenager who feels lonely, who feels lonely, that you would work through your people to remind them that they are not alone. I pray, Father, for the young mother who threw everything together and barely made it in here on a wing and a prayer that today, today, oh Lord, you would settle her heart and calm her spirit and remind her she is not alone. I pray for the dad who feels disrespected at work, who wonders if his kids really know how he feels about them, who doesn't feel like he has any friends like he used to have. Oh, today, today, Lord, that he would be certain, convinced that he is not alone. Oh, God, your people are a family. Let us experience the full glory of it. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are certain experiences that you have as a parent, that you just kind of never forget, right? Like, if you spend time around any parent for any period of time, you're, you're likely to hear uh, their, their top five stories, right? Well, one of my top five stories happens when uh, Gracie Kate was about three years old. I'd been away at Salt Lake City on a mission trip with some of you, actually, and I'd been gone for about a week. And I guess it was the first time in her little life in which she, I had been away and she was really old enough to realize that dad's not here. Uh, old enough to kind of start missing me a little bit. 
Well, after I'd gotten back, or, or when I was coming back, our plan was my flight was going to arrive really early in the morning. And so our plan was that Megan was going to take her to the daycare and I was going to go home and kind of get caught up from jet lag and get some rest and, and sleep. And then uh, we were going to go and get her that afternoon. And so she'd been told, Dad's coming this afternoon, or we're going to you know, go home, see Dad this afternoon. He's finally going to be home. But you know how you do when you're a parent, right? You, you, you get tired and you get exhausted and all you want is a night away from those little monsters so that you can sleep. And then you get a night away from those little monsters and all you can really think about is being back with them again, right? You, you guys have probably had that experience. And so I, I, my, plan lay, my plane, plane lands and I come into town and I'm on my way home to sleep and I thought, I'm just going to go get her. I'm just going to go get her. I, I, wanted, I, just wanted, I, know, I, you know, I don't care that I'm tired. I don't care about all that. I, I'm just going to go get her. And it was like 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, so it was really early. And so I, I show up, and the sitter, of course, is, is surprised to see me. And, and there, all the kids are in another room. It was a home daycare. And so she said, wait, I'm going to go get Gracie Kate. And so she goes to get her. And I can hear a little Gracie. If you, if you know Gracie at all, you know she has this enormous, loud, jovial personality. She's just like her mama. Um, and... So she came bebopping down the hallway with this loud, vibrant personality, and she's just doing her little Gracie Kate thing. And I'll never forget, she got to the doorway where she could see me, and she just started sobbing uncontrollably. And I was like, I, I thought that she was upset that I was taking her away from her friends. She's kind of a social, social creature, a social butterfly. And all of a sudden, she's just sobbing so hard that she, can, she can't even get words to come out of her mouth. And she just runs to me. And I scooped her up in my arms and I pulled her close. And she started doing this. She would put her hands on my chest and she would reach out and she would look at me in the face. And then she'd pull me close again. And she'd push her hands out and she'd look at me in the face. And then she'd pull me close again. And she said, I thought you were mom. I missed you so much. And I thought, oh, have mercy, I'm about to have revival or something up in here. You know what I mean? I guess it's the first time in her little life that she had ever cried tears of joy, tears, tears of happiness. Well, you can imagine how that made me feel. You can imagine just the, the, how the bond that I had with her was even increased and elevated in that moment. But you know what that little girl was teaching us? She was teaching us what family looks like, wasn't she? She's teaching us what family looks like. Family are the people that miss you. Fa fa family fa family is, is that, that group of people that, that drives you crazy, that you kind of want to break from sometimes, that, that kind of you, you want to have some space from, but they're the ones that celebrate you when you return. They're the ones that, that miss you and cry tears of joy when you come back. They're the ones that, that wrap their little arms around you and, and let you know that you have a place in this world, that you have a place where you belong. You have a group that identifies with you, that loves you. That's what the church is supposed to look like, y'all. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That's why we've defined connection as we've defined it. That connection is when you begin to identify your church as a family, a family who misses you when you're gone and who you miss when you're unable to attend. But here's what we found in our statistic. I thought I'd put it right there, but I did not. Um, is what we found in our statistics in our survey is that about Four out of every ten people that are a part of our church feel like nobody misses them when they're not there. Four out of ten. 
That, that's, your, that's your responses. That's out of about 115 people that responded to the survey. So that's a good sample size, about a third of our congregation. So, so out of 100 people, 40, or 40 of them said, I don't think anybody really knows that I'm not there. I miss being there, they, they, they say. I'm, I miss being a part, but I'm not sure that anybody cares that I'm not, not able to be there. Y'all, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart. That makes me want to cry, if I'm being honest with you. That someone could come and be a part of this body and not believe that they're missed. Why? We are family. We are family. Now, some of, some of you are new and you're not, you're, you're not there yet. You're, the relationships are still being forged and things are still being bonded. I get all of that. It's not ever going to be 100%. We, we talked about that. As long as the, as the church is growing, as long as God is adding to our number, it's never going to be 100%. But y'all, it ought to be higher than 6 out of 10. So here's what I'm asking us to do. We've got to own it. We've got to own it. We've got to own it and take, take responsibility for it because, because as we read the scriptures, as we begin laying out and seeing, as we're going to see even clearer this morning, the church is not an event that you attend. It's not an experience that you have. It's a family you belong to. It's a family you belong to. It's a, it's a place where you're loved, where you're missed, where you're supported, where you're held up, where you're chased after, where you're, where you're held accountable, where you're spurred on, where you're encouraged. Now, I feel like there's a need for a disclaimer as we talk about family. Some of you, when, when I start talking about family, only negative things come into your mind. You didn't come from a good family. Maybe you came from a family that abandoned you. Maybe even within your, your church experience, you, when you think about church family, it doesn't come with good experiences. It doesn't come with, with a lot of, of positive thoughts. There, there is a, there's scarring involved in your life. I want to I make sure that you understand when we preach, what we're preaching is ideals. We are preaching a series of ideals because that's what the Lord has called us to. So when, we take, when we, we're talking about family, I'm not talking about your experience in family. I'm talking about family as God has intended it. I'm talking about the experience that God designed you for. That what we're to pursue is not, not what, what we've experienced or what we've thought or what, what we're to pursue is how God designed it, how God engineered it, that he might bring us together and bond us together. So what we're going to look at this morning is what is family supposed to be? What is family supposed to be? First thing I want you to do is that, to see is that our family should be instinctive. Our family should be instinctive. So I included verse 9 here on the screen because it, it looks like it's saying the same thing, right? So it says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then it says, love one another with brotherly affection. So, so when it says, let love be genuine and, let, and, and then love one another with brotherly affection, as we read that in English, it looks like it's talking about the same thing, that it's, it's using the same word. But actually, in Greek, there's actually a change that's taking place, that there are two different words that are being used for, for love. So we talked about last week how in verse 9 we have, verse nine we have this idea of agape love. So agape love is decisive love. It's love of the will. It's, it's a love that you decide to, to demonstrate. It's, it's a, a, a choice to love. It's a, it's a commitment to love. It's a resolve to love. 
We, we talked about how throughout Romans, the, the type of love that is said to be demonstrated toward us from God is this agape love, this supreme love, this chosen love, this, this act of the will, not based on, on what I'm feeling, not based on what, what I'm going through, not, not this up and down experience like so many of us have with love, but this, this resolved, committed, decisive love. And, it, and, and the love that we're talking about that we're supposed to have with, for one another cannot be less than that. That's the standard. But it is intended to be more than that. It is intended to be more than that. Not less, but certainly more. And that's what comes to verse 10. So in verse 10, the idea is a phileo love. Phileo love. And so the idea of a phileo love is a brotherly affection. So this, uh, the word love and brotherly affection, which is one word in the Greek, both share the same prefix, okay? Brotherly affection is actually the word, the Greek word Philadelphia. Y'all ever heard of that before? All right, so Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love, right? That's where they get it from. It's the city of brotherly love. And so the type of love that it's talking about in verse 10 is the kind of of love that that warms you from the inside out. It's the kind of love that that you do feel. It's, It's a love that is comfortable, it's a love that is compassionate. It's, it's a love that, that, is, that is inwardly compelling you to act and to demonstrate and to show. It's the kind of love that a mom has for her little baby when, he, when she delivers him at first and he's laid on her chest for the very first time. You can't really articulate that, can you? You can't really describe that. It, it's, it's something that's within you. It's something that just comes, comes exploding out of you. It's something that you, you feel on the, on the deepest level. It's the kind of love that a son has for his dad when he begins to defend his dad or, or exalt his dad on the playground. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Well, my dad can pick up the truck, right? Oh, oh yeah? Oh, yeah? Well, my dad, my dad, he's like the smartest guy in the whole world. Oh, yeah? Well, Superman, he's afraid of my dad. Chuck Norris calls my dad for advice, right? He doesn't even know why he does it. But as the conversation of dad comes up, that little boy has inside of him this affection, this bond for his father that he doesn't even know how to describe that compels him to begin building him up and exalting him and and talking positively about him. It's hard for him to even express exactly how he feels toward his dad. It's the way two brothers feel toward each other. The way two brothers feel toward each other. It, it, it's that sense in which, man, they can be at each other. They can be making fun of each other. They can be slamming on each other. And then, and then, all of a sudden, somebody else at school picks on brother. And who's there to show up? The other brother. Your wife passes away and everybody tells you how they feel. And everybody tells you how heartbroken they are for you. But then your brother comes. And he wraps those arms around you. And it just means something different. You can't express it. You can't articulate it. That the type of love that it's talking about in verse 10 is family love. Family love. The bond that families have with each other. So when I talk about that our love for each other, our family for one another ought to be instinctive, what I mean is, is that it ought to come from an inward compulsion 
that we ought to be inwardly compelled to show affection for each other. It ought to be something not just that we know, not just that we decide. It ought to be something that we feel deep within us. And as Christians, we get nervous, especially post-enlightenment Christians. Christians, we get really nervous talking about feeling and emotion, and we think all of that's bad. But God designed us that way, man. And we are commanded to feel some way inwardly toward each other. And really that falls in line. I told you that uh, Romans chapter 12 is really a group of, of uh, separate exhortations that are, are loosely connected together. And the best connection that we have is really to verse 2. That it's showing us what it means to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, that what these exhortations are, are showing us is the outward expression of this inward transformation that has begun to be taken place. That gets back to this concept of affection. What is affection? Affection is the experience of the heart, isn't it? If affection is something that your, your heart realizes and your heart senses and your, your heart experiences. And then it's expressed because of the experience that you're having within. It's, it's an inward bond that you sense with your husband. It's an inward bond that you sense with your mom or your grandmom or your child. It's that brotherly affection. It's that family love. You see, the way that we're supposed to understand this is that our love for fam our earthly families is an instinct that we were born with, right? It's an inst uh, have you guys seen the video of the, the mama bear trying to get her cubs across the road? Have you guys seen that? Is that not awesome? Like, it's, it's life in a, in, a, in a quick video, right? Like, mama bear's trying to get all her little cubs, and like, every time she tries to get the cub in the back, like, breaks foul and goes back the other side. And so she goes to the other side of the road to try to get the cub, and when she does that, the other one starts following her back. And, and so all of the mamas in here know exactly what she's feeling, don't you? You know, amen, Emily's up here praising the Lord because she probably experienced something like that this morning, trying to herd her cats into the car. That mama bear, she doesn't even know why she does that, does she? She doesn't even know why she does that. She doesn't even have the rational capacity to process why it is that she feels so inwardly compelled to take care of those cubs. She just does. Because it's an instinct that has been placed inside of her. It's an inward compulsion that she has. Oh, it's the same way for you, isn't it? I want you to think about it. It breaks my heart. When I was in youth ministry, you would come across at times children that have been totally mistreated by their families, maybe even abused by their families. I can think of, of young men that I would go and, and pick up to bring to church, and every day, I would, every Sunday, it seemed like I picked them up at a different house, waking up with a different man uh, that they don't know in the living room. But you know what those kids did? They still loved their mamas. They still loved their daddies. No matter how many times they've been abandoned, no matter how many times they've been uh, uh, mistreated, no matter how many times even that they've been abused, there was something inside of them. There was something that was inwardly compelling them. They would want to protect mom. They would want to protect dad. They would want to defend their honor. They wanted to be where they were, even if where they were was not always a safe place. But God designed us so that we would be built with this type of love inside of us as a reflection of who he is. So I want you to think about this. We are born with an inward love, an instinct to love our families. And we are born again to have a, an instinct to love our spiritual families. 
We are born again to be inwardly compelled toward one another, drawn to each other, loving one another, that, that you really can't even explain. Why am I so committed to the church? Why am I always wanting to take care of them? Why am I taking meals over here? Why do I feel such a, a bond to that person, such a responsibility for that person? It's because I have been born again and the Spirit has taken residence in me. He is transforming me from the inside out. He is changing what I love. He is changing what I want. He is changing what I pursue because I have been reborn and being reborn, I have new instincts. I have new inward compulsions propelling me toward other people. But what I want you to understand is that the instinct to love is an instinct toward joy. The instinct to love is an instinct toward joy. The love that families experience is not perfect. But you ask a mom what she's feeling when she holds that baby on her chest for the first time. You know what word I bet she says? Joy. What other word is there? What other word is there? You watch as a, as a, as a son comes home from war and steps in her mom, his mom's living room and she wraps her arms around him and tears come streaming down her face. And you say, Mom, what are you feeling right now? You know what word she'll use? Joy. My goodness, what other word is there? You see, you can have a young man who grows up as a boy without a family and he can grow up and he, he, he can become a productive member of society. He may be an overall happy person. He may be able to overcome all odds. But you know what? If he doesn't have a family, what he'll always say is something's missing. Something's missing. I may not be miserable, but I'm not as happy as I could be because I never experienced the, the extraordinary power of what it means for my earthly dad to wrap his arms around me and draw me close to his chest and say, Son, I'm proud of you. I never experienced what it was like to beat my big brother in basketball for the first time in the elation of being able to dance in that moment. I don't even know what it's like to have a Thanksgiving table with the generations and a heritage gathered around it so that I can look forward to it for weeks and months ahead of time. Now, he may not be a miserable person, but he'll tell you, he'll tell you, I'm missing something. Can you be a Christian and not be committed to the church? I think you probably can. I think you probably can. I wonder about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of your instinct, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's within the realm of possibility that you can be a Christian and not be committed into the life of the church. But here's the thing, you'll be missing something. You'll be missing something. You'll be missing the joy of what it means to gather with a family every week. You'll be missing the joy of watching little babies grow up into young men and women of honor that you're proud of. You'll miss attending their weddings. You'll miss going and wrapping your arms around a grieving widow at the end of a casket of a man that she's been married to for 65 years. You'll miss that. You'll miss what it's like when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death and the family of the people of God gather around you and pray over you and cry on your behalf and intercede on for you. You'll miss it. You'll miss it. So, so here's what I want to ask you. How seriously are you willing to take joy? How seriously will you take joy? Because the instinct toward family, the instinct to love is an instinct toward joy. The second thing I want you to see about the type of family that we're supposed to have is that our family should be close. Our family should be close. Inherent within this idea of brotherly affection is the type of love that is comfortable, the type of love that is safe, 
The type of love that is secure. The type of love that disarms you. The type of love that gives you a safe haven. The type of love that gives you a refuge. The type of love that enables you to stop pretending like you're one person and, and pretending like you have great manners and great etiquette. To quit pretending like, like you're the super intellectual type. You know what I mean? Like, you see, if, when you meet somebody for the very first time, you may want to put your best foot forward. You, you, you may want to look like, like you have all of your act together. You'll come, your shirt will be pressed, your, it'll be tucked in, you'll have your jeans like you like them, your car may be washed. At dinner, you won't say anything that's, that's off color. But then, 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 when you go to your mama's house and you sit around the dining room table, you'll burp. It's the difference, right? That's what's being talked about here. The, the word here for love is, is a, a, I hit the wrong button there, forgive me. The word that's, that's uh, used for love here is the word philostorgai, philostorgai. And, and it, it means to, to love dearly. Or, or your, your translation may even say to be devoted to. It encompasses that same, that same idea. So it, it means a devoted, delighted, dear close, intimate, personal love for each other. That the type of love that we are to demonstrate in the church is a love that is knowing, a knowing love. In other words, I know everything about you. You don't have to pretend with me. I know the quirks of your personalities. I know your idiosyncrasies. I know your flaws. I know that sometimes you get irritable when you haven't eaten. I'm not going to take offense to that. I know sometimes you get, let, let your mouth get out of control, so I'm not going to hold that against you forever. I, I know that sometimes you can have a bit of a temper, and so I'm going to help call you back down. I know things about you, and knowing you, I want you to know that you don't have to pretend with me. We can be close. We can be intimate. We can, we can be tight with one another. We can be bonded with one another. We can show grace to each other. We can show mercy to each other. It's the type of love that families has, isn't it? A knowing love. A knowing love. Like when, there, There's something about when all of a sudden you gather around with a bunch of people that changed your diaper that causes you to stop pretending like you're a big deal. Right? When, when you get around your brothers... When, when, when you get around your siblings, all of a sudden, you don't have to pretend like you're not a dork because all of them know what a big dork you actually are. So what is that, what, what, what's the feeling that you have when you go home, if you have a healthy home? Let me tell you the feeling that I have. I grew up with a healthy home. I go home to 925 Red Road 55, and I sit in the chair that I sat in growing up, and I pop the recliner up, prop my feet. I might even get my favorite blanket if they still got one handy. And y'all, I take it easy. And I feel at rest. I feel at peace. I don't feel like I have to pastor anybody. I love pastoring people, but sometimes it's nice to take a step back. You know what I'm saying? I don't feel like I have to pastor anybody. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I have to uh, make sure that everybody's having a good time. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I have, a, a, uh, have to carry some kind of crazy responsibility to, to make sure that nobody gets their feelings hurt. We're just a family. We're just us. We know one another. We know the problems that are there. We know the frustrations that grow there. We have memories together, though. We have stories together. And so we're disarmed. It becomes a refuge and a safe haven. Y'all, do y'all not see the gospel bouncing around in there? 
See, the, that's the, the gospel is the foundation for the love that we are to have one another. How does God love us? God loves us with a knowing love. The most remarkable thing about the glory of God, the grace of God, is that God knows all the things that you think, all the things that you do, all the things that you want. He knows the things that you do in secret, the things that you do in public. He knows the things that you do alone. He knows the things that you do at work. He knows all of those things about you, and yet his feelings towards you, his commitment to you, his love to you is unchanged. So what does that mean? I can take refuge in God. I can confess to God. I can be honest with God. I can be disarmed by God. I can be at rest with God because God fully knows me. God is close to me. God is intimate with me. And because God is close to me and knows me, I don't have to put on an air for him. I don't have to pretend with him. I can be me. Oh, oh, that's the church. That's how we're supposed to be for each other. Not coming with our best foot forward, not coming with a fake smile, not coming pretending like everything's okay when on the inside you feel like you're dying. No, this is us coming home. This is us gathering in the family living room where we can throw up our feet and cast off our cares. This is us finding a safe haven, a refuge with one another where we don't have to pretend anymore. We can be ourselves. So Sarah... She's kind of at a, a pivotal age in her little life. She's five years old, and she, she doesn't get to spend a lot of time around other kids, right? Um, she's, her grandmother keeps her, and um, really over her whole life, it's kind of been a bit of, our, our family's been in kind of some tough spots at, at times, with, particularly with my health. And so Megan and I have, have talked about how we worry sometimes that maybe little Sarah didn't get the same childhood that maybe Gracie did, or ho- and hopefully that Josiah will, because we had a, a four or five year stretch in there, which is basically her whole life, in which things just weren't right in our family. Things were just tough, and we just didn't feel like doing things, and she wasn't able to be around kids and all those other things. Well, we've really been working to, to, to spend some focused, concentrated time with her, and I was away preaching Last weekend at a, at a different church, or two weekends ago at a different church, and um, Megan was at home, and she decided that she was just going to spend some time with Sarah. And so she was there, and she said, all right, baby, well, I, I'm going to have to go and uh, take care of something with, with Josiah. And, and Sarah said, oh, that's okay, Mommy. And, and, and Megan asked her, do you ever get lonely? And she said, I get lonely a lot, Mom. I get lonely a lot. She said, do you know what I do? All unprovoked. Do you know what I do? I turn on the TV. And I pretend like the people inside of the TV are my family, are my friends. And when I can pretend like they are my friends, then I'm not lonely anymore. And of course, it breaks your heart. But I think it's a picture of very often what is happening in our day and age. God has purchased for us a family but we're settling for a television. You see, the problem with the closeness that we're intended to experience in our family, the problem with even though we have this instinct inside of us that's to draw us together is that we live in an arm's length society and we don't really know what family looks like anymore and we don't really know what closeness is like anymore. Our closeness is superficial. It's through a phone. It's, it's through texting. It's, it's through social media. It's through Instagram photographs, all of which are plastic, all of which are your best foot forward. 
forward, none of which reveal the true you, who you actually are on the inside. And all of it is at a distance. All of it is arm's length. And y'all, y'all, God has called us to something deeper. God has called us to something richer. God has called us to something better and more beautiful and more powerful where we can actually be with each other in living color, being real, being honest, being transparent, being vulnerable, offering ourselves in the fullness of who we are. Oh, we can't settle for a television. We can't settle for social media. We can't settle for texting relationships. We are meant to be connected together as a family. I think of it on like a continuum. So in, in, in my way of thinking, we have four types of people that are here this morning, okay? We have attenders that are here, people that don't really know anybody and are pretty anonymous. Maybe it's your first time here or whatever, and you're, we're glad that you're here. We want you to be here. We don't want you to stay there. Then we have acquaintances, right? People, they know names. They, they have loose they have loose associations with people. They, they know that we all kind of gather in the same place. We kind of know where one another generally sits in the church. We can bump into each other in the hallway and say, excuse me, and, and flash a smile. And, and that's really an acquaintance. Then as we begin to move, we're moving closer to connection now. We have friends. Friends, people that we can go and say, man, what did you think about the game Friday night? Or, or how, 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 do you, how do you feel about the, the Todd's quarterback situation? It's, it's people that you're able to have casual conversations with and you sense some, some level of connection with them. And, and, and you may even think, you, you know, honey, we ought, to, we ought to get together with such and such. You may never follow through, but you at least have the thought, right? You, like, you at least have the intention. We ought, we ought to call oh, such and such over. But then there's a fourth category, and I think, this is, I think this is what the gospel is calling us to, and it's brotherhood, sisterhood. It's family. These are the people with whom you call up out of the blue and you say, I need you to pray for me right now. I need you to pray for me right now. These are the people that you go and you say, look, I am at war right now, and I need you shoulder to shoulder with me in the trenches. Are you with me? These are the people that you call when your marriage feels like it's crumbling. And you say, I, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. Can you help me understand? Can you, can you, hold me, can you tell me where, where, where I'm messing up, where I'm confused? Can, can you hold me accountable? This is who you confess your pornography addiction to. This is, this is who you, you get real with, right? Here's what I bet. That your the level of joy that you have in your church family is probably proportionate to where you find yourself on this continuum. That if you're on the, the further, the closer you are to just being an attender, the less amount of joy that you're going to find in the church. The more that you become a brother or a sister, more, the more that you sense that spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood, the greater the joy is that you're going to have in your church family. The, the, the more vulnerable you are, the more likely you are to get your feelings hurt sometimes because you're close to people, right? Like, like I tell people sometimes, like if you're, if you're coming to our church and you don't want a pastor that's going to hurt your feelings, let you down, and offend you, this is probably not the right one because I'm probably going to get close enough to you where you're going to realize just how messed up I am, Right? That, that I'm, I'm kind of a basket case. But I think that's the idea, man. Like, I think that's the idea. Here, here's what we found. Is that when we surveyed our church, when we surveyed our church, only 38%, 38% believed that they had a brotherhood or a sisterhood. Here's the reality. Jesus has already purchased the brotherhood. 
Jesus has already purchased the sisterhood. It's already, you're already a family. You're already bound together. What our responsibility is, is that we would feel what Jesus has purchased. That we would have as experience what spiritually is already reality. So here's what I'm calling for us. Here's what I'm calling for us. Four out of ten, four out of ten is not enough. Four out of ten. Let's own it. Let's own it together. Let's take responsibility. Let's look at this continuum and let's figure out how do we advance down the court, man? If today you feel like you have acquaintances but not friends, let's make it our goal. How do we build friendships? How do we move and take that next step in relationships? If If you find yourself right now and you say, I have a lot of friends, but I don't know that I have that brotherhood, well, who can you reach out to? What, what, what can you, who can you take to lunch? How can you begin to cultivate that sense of brotherhood? Who can you begin to pray for? Because the kind of family that we're called to have is a close family, a close family, a personal family, a painful family, a safe haven for you, a refuge where you are known yet loved. Brings me to the last point this morning is that our family should be competitive. Our family, I bet you didn't see that word coming. I bet you didn't see that word coming. Our family should be competitive. But listen to what Paul says at the last part of verse, uh, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection and what? Outdo one another in showing honor. What, what does that word outdo remind us of? Reminds us of competition, right? Mamas of boys, y'all help me out. What happens when two brothers get together? They compete, right? They compete. There's this sibling rivalry that's among them. As a matter of fact, think about it like this. The closer the brothers are, the more they compete with each other, right? So so in our minds, competition is division. In our mind, competition drives us apart. But in reality, in a healthy family where you are close to one another, where you are drawn near to each other, there is actually more competition. And I think in Paul's mind, as he talks about this family type of love, this is at the forefront where if we can reframe the competition in the terms of the gospel and reframe the competition in the terms of what Christ would have us to do, then we can take that competition and we can use it as a way to elevate and exalt Christ and bring the family together. And so he says, let it be a competition among you. You compete with each other. Who can show the other the most honor? Who can defer the most glory to the other person? Who can die to themselves the most? Who can crucify themselves the most? I listed Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It's hard to see in English, but, but in the original language, it really is a, uh, uses a lot of the very same words and is teaching the same principle. When he says, do, not, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's the same idea as showing honor, as outdoing one another and showing honor. That this is in this shame honor culture where honor is of more value than money. Honor is of more value than a mansion. Honor is of more value than a car. And he's saying every opportunity that you have to receive honor, you deflect that honor and you lift up your brother and you make your brother's honor more important than your own. Count him as more significant than yourself. In other words, what he's saying is to follow in the steps of Jesus. And when you have the opportunity to put your desires and your wants and your loves and your aspirations in the driver's seat of your life, deny yourself. And instead, ask yourself, what's better for her? What's better for him? What does he love? 
What does she love? What does he want? What does she want? Not what do I want, not what do I need, not what do I hope for. You see, what if we flip the question? What if rather, instead of us asking, does anybody miss me? What if instead we begin to ask, how can I make sure nobody else gets missed? What if instead of saying, I don't think anybody wants to be my friend. What if we begin to say, oh, how can I find somebody that's lonely and be their friend today? See, it it transforms the idea when you take yourself off of the throne and you put other people where you used to live. I'm going to embarrass her a little bit, but that's why Megan is my favorite person in the whole world. The most amazing thing to me about her is that she's the exact same person at home that you see here at church. The exact, I'm, I'm there with her all the time. I can, I can vouch for her and, and tell you that it's the truth. And what I think is so amazing that she does is she's always finding ways. There's five of us living in that house and y'all, it's five big personalities, okay? Five big personalities. And we are a demanding crew. And somehow, somehow this woman finds a way to make every one of us feel special. I don't know how she does it. She she makes sure that we all have things that we love to eat, and very often she doesn't cook the things that she loves to eat. She She always makes sure that everybody else has all their stuff ready for the next day, and then she has to throw her own stuff together. She's the last one to go and take care of herself. And the whole time she's making sure that you feel loved and that you feel special and that you feel valued and that you feel wanted. And I think that's why our family feels so close. I think that's why our house is my very favorite place to be in the whole world. And I think it's a picture. I think it's a picture when he says to outdo one another in showing honor of what it means to live together in the life of the church rather than what kind of music do I like, rather than what kind of preaching do I want, rather than what kind of chair do I want to sit, rather than what kind of programs do I want us to have, rather than what kind of ministries or what kind of missions do I want us to do. What if I began to say, how is it that I can minister to my brother? How is it that I can build them up in the Lord? How is it, how is it that I can let them leave this place today knowing that they matter in my eyes, knowing that they matter in the eyes of God, knowing that they have a special place right here among us. Do you want to know the best way for you to connect? The best way for you to connect is to begin obsessing over the connections of other people. And if you begin to take responsibility for the connections of other people, every person that you personally work to connect, guess who they're going to connect to? They're going to connect to you. And so in the process, as you begin to take your eyes off of yourself and place them onto other people, all of a sudden you gain acquaintances and friends and a brotherhood. So brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, let's aim at family. Let's aim at family. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.